This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. The cerium head blight, also known as head scab, is a tricky and sometimes very costly fungus. Some years we hardly see any of it, and some years it can cause widespread problems. It all depends on the weather during a specific point in the wheat growth, flowering. Some fields have already started to flower, and the rest are not far behind. Wheat farmers need to check their variety resistance to fusarium and be watching the weather during the flowering period. By the time this fungus can be seen, it's too late to do anything about it. Fusarium is a fungal disease that hangs around from year to year, unlike rust that blows in from the south. It holds on to residue from other grass species that can also infect, such as corn and milo. Wheat heads are at risk of fusarium infection only during flowering and the early stages of grain fill. This is because the wheat is a self-pollinated crop, and the wheat heads are closed off during most of the pollination stage. However, at a certain point during pollination, the wheat spikelets will open up and the anthers will pop out in an attempt to do some wind cross-pollination as well. We call this flowering, or anthesis, and it usually lasts around 5 days. On the fixed scale, it would be stages 10.51 to 10.53. If the weather is rainy, humid, and around 60 to 80 degrees during this period, then the fusarium fungus can find its way into the wheat kernels. There is an excellent online interactive map to see the fusarium risk based on weather conditions at wescab.psu.edu. Signs of fusarium infection start to show up a couple weeks after flowering when the kernels are somewhere in the milk to soft dough stage. First, the spikelets will have tan discolorations, usually over just part of the head. This looks like a lot of other diseases or even hail damage. The real signs of fusarium are shown with closer inspection. There will be orange fungal spores on the base of the spikelets, and sometimes a pinkest discoloration of the kernels. This pinkest discoloration can be seen during harvest and is accompanied by shriveled grains. Fusarium can affect yield somewhat, but this isn't the real problem. Fusarium can also create a certain type of vomitoxin with the acronym DON. DON is carried in the grain and is a very stable toxin that is dangerous to humans and animals if ingested. Since most wheat is consumed by humans, the allowable limits of DON is very low. It is important to note that not all fusarium infections will end up creating DON, and not all wheat kernels infected with DON will have symptoms. The ports and sometimes the co-ops are going to test the wheat for DON either way. So, this brings us to what can be done about fusarium. The first and best line of defense is variety resistance. After that, fungicides can be used with limited success. At most, fungicides can have a 50% suppression and reduction of DON. The fungicides will only affect if it's going to be used during the flowering period and up to a few days after pollination, when the kernel is open and the fungus is trying to get in. Not all fungicides can be used during flowering. Some are not labeled and some can actually increase DON levels. Largely, this will be fungicides in the triazole family that can be used. The K-State publication, Fuller Fungicide Efficiency, can help show which are most effective and can be used. Of course, the final word is always the product label. If you have any questions about wheat diseases, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. And don't forget about our Spring Crop Field Day and Wheat Plot Tour on May 17th in Parsons. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. This is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. 
Calling open females and adding replacement heifers are strategies for maximizing herd reproductive efficiency. In most cattle herds, around 18% of the annual income is generated from cull cows. While there are several factors that can be considered when choosing animals for culling, reproductive efficiency and disposition are usually the highest ranking factors. A female with an attitude can create trouble and it's a highly heritable characteristic. For livestock operations to be profitable, cows, ewes, sows, or nanny goats need to maintain the annual goals of reproduction. For cattle, that usually means calving each year. And not only calving, but also utilizing maternal skills to raise the calf through weaning. Oftentimes, producers will cull cows in the fall, depending on the operation's calving season. Mid to late summer can be a good time of year to early pregnancy check those females and call any that are open or late bred. Veterinarians are able to check pregnancy status 40 to 50 days past conception with manual palpation. Using ultrasound technology, that confirmation can be seen as early as 30 days. Blood testing is even more rapid. Why would you want to confirm pregnancies now? Marketing is just one reason. Identifying cattle now that are going to leave the herd and enter the marketplace ahead of the flood of cull cows can bring you a higher price. Cattle are sold by the pound, so another consideration might be to hold those cull cows and supply them additional feed resources to help garner a higher selling price. Another motivation is a pasture drought situation. When cows are thin and feed costs are high, it might not make sense to hold cull cows longer and pay for additional feed. Removing the cull cows from the grazing pressure on a pasture may free up some grass for higher priority animals. For most operations, the discussion of selling cull cows is either followed by or precipitated by adding replacement heifers or introducing new bloodlines to a herd. According to K-State veterinarian Brian Lubbers, anytime there are new additions to any species of livestock herds, a 15 to 30 day quarantine is recommended. This quarantine is especially important if you're bringing outside animals into a reproductive herd. This confinement means no nose-to-nose -nose contact or opportunity for fecal or oral contact. While this isolation will allow some diseases to appear if the cattle are contagious, it may not show them all. There are some diseases that have a persistent carrier condition, like bovine viral diarrhea or trichomoniasis, making the animal appear healthy, but the individual still sheds the disease. The good news is that for most of these diseases, there are dependable tests to identify the carriers. Knowing the health status of the source herd of incoming livestock will help the producer and veterinarian make a herd health plan for those new animals. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office. 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Warmer weather and moisture are the perfect combination for internal parasites to thrive, which makes internal parasite management a priority for sheep and goat producers in the spring and summer. To be able to effectively manage and control internal parasites in your herd, it is important to recognize the symptoms. When sheep or goats are burdened with parasites, there are a variety of symptoms that can be used to identify if an animal is infected with parasites 
and which parasites are causing the problem. Some general symptoms typical of parasite infections are diarrhea, weight loss or reduced weight gain, unthriftiness, loss of appetite, rough hair coat, and reduced reproductive capacity and performance. In the case of humongous parasites, more commonly known as barber pole worms, anemia and edema or swelling are key symptoms. The barber pole worm can consume up to one-tenth of an animal's total blood volume in a day. Anemia is most easily identified in small ruminants by the color of the mucous membranes, particularly those in the lower eyelid. A normal animal will have healthy red mucous membranes, while one heavily burdened with barber pole worms will exhibit light pink or white membranes. Edema may also occur in animals heavily burdened with barber pole worms. This accumulation of fluid will be most obvious as swelling in the lower jaw, a condition referred to as bottle jaw. Diarrhea is not a common symptom of barber pole worm infection, although it has been known to occur in some cases. To evaluate if an animal has a large barber pole worm load, Fomantia scoring, which evaluates the inner eyelid color of the animal and scores the animal based on the color, can help determine the internal parasite load of the animal. To get a more accurate ideal of the amount and type of internal parasites an animal has, fecal egg counts can be done to measure the number of eggs shed in the feces. The main goal in attempting to control barber pole worms and other internal parasites is to break the life cycle, which can be done in a variety of ways. Three methods include the use of dewormers, animal management, and pasture management. Using a combination of these three will usually give the best results and the best chance of breaking the life cycle of barber pole worms and other internal parasites in your herd. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. When choosing trees for your landscape, it's very important to look up and gauge the full size of the tree to ensure that it will not grow into any power lines as its size increases. Trees need to be clear of power lines by a certain distance, and if they encroach on the lines, the power company will prune the tree back to the proper distance, and it's not their jobs to worry about the health or shape of the tree. Encroaching trees can cause safety issues, and if the tree is in the lines, You've either picked the wrong tree or the wrong spot for that tree. If you decide to prune your own trees near power lines, give the electric company a call. They can often provide recommendations about safety for your specific situation and protective equipment to minimize the risk of injury to yourself and the neighborhood's electricity source. 
You can also cause utility problems when digging holes for trees and shrubs. Over 20 million miles of utilities are buried across the U.S., and a utility is interrupted every six minutes from digging. You can call 811 two days before you dig to have the utility companies come to your property and mark where your utilities are buried. This will map where it should be safe to dig and put plants with deep root systems. The three most common buried utilities you need to avoid are gas, electrical, and cable or internet lines. Utility locators are human too, so exercise caution when digging, even if there are no marked utilities nearby. You never know what you might find when digging. With temperatures heating up, keep a close eye on your elm trees for signs of rapid wilting. This could be a sign of Dutch elm disease. DED is a wilt disease that is always terminal in an elm unless you catch it before 5% of the canopy shows symptoms. The elm bark beetle carries the fungus in its gut up to the canopy in the spring after overwintering and transfers the fungus to the plant tissue when feeding. As the fungus moves inward from the feeding site, it plugs up the tissue and prevents water and nutrients from getting to the outer parts of the canopy. This is why you see sudden dieback as the weather turns hot and dry. The further the fungus moves inward, the more of the canopy will die off. Once it gets to the trunk, the entire tree will die and needs to be removed. Prevention of DED in healthy trees depends heavily on exclusion of the elm bark beetle and removal of overwintering sites, as the fungus cannot enter the tree without the beetles. If you have debris from an elm tree, do not store it in a brush pile, especially if the tree the debris came from is diseased. This provides a site for elm bark beetles to nest. Remove and burn any fallen debris immediately after it falls. It's also important to prune out any weak sections of the canopy, as this is the first area that the elm bark beetles will target. Finally, if you are pruning multiple elm trees, sanitize your equipment before moving on to the next tree. The DED fungus can travel on pruners and might be introduced to healthy trees accidentally. Wipe your pruners down with alcohol to kill off any pathogens that might be trying to hitchhike to a new host. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.